Welcome to The 7 Deadly Sins of B2B Marketing, the Omobono podcast that preaches the tips and tricks of B2B marketing. In each episode, we sit down with B2B marketers and talk about what makes them proud, envious, and angry in the world of B2B. Their revelations will uncover new insights that'll set you on the path to better ways of working. Hello. Well, I'm Fran Brosen. I'm chairman and co-founder of Omabono. And this morning I've got with me Connor Coughlin, who is CMO of Fernergo. Connor, it's great to see you again. Let's start with a bit about you. Um, what makes you tick career-wise? You're now at Fernergo and previously at Thomson Reuters. Tell us a little bit about your career. Well, it's, it's slightly challenging to, to frame because, as we know, career paths aren't necessarily linear. And... Um, Certainly, it's been a diverse journey to get here. Uh, I was a quasi-politician for a while, an LGBTQ um, activist. Uh, I lobbied um, the Irish Senate on social justice, and uh, I've previously ran two NGO organisations, in addition to be um, an author on uh, homophobic and transphobic hate crimes. So, um, certainly was a diverse uh, youth, um, and certainly that all kind of lent in, towards communication and the, the importance of uh, effective communication. And then prior to actually coming into marketing, I was about to become a biotechnician, um, but actually did a module in uh, a one-day module on marketing. And then it was jumping into the industry, um, doing all of my uh, study at night at that stage, uh, joining the Chartered Institute of Marketing, uh, which was uh, certainly a point for me in relation to um baselining my professional skills and expertise, and then subsequently joining the Chartered Institute of Securities and Investment, because it's very much where I am in the uh, BFSI space. Uh, sorry for those who aren't familiar, banking, financial services and insurance. And tell us a little bit about Fenergo and what, what that does. So Fenergo is an Irish global reg tech company. We specialise in client lifecycle um, management and digital transformation. And what that actually means is the following. So if your listeners can, can remember a moment in time when you've tried to apply for a credit card or open a bank account or attain a mortgage and you had a beautiful, seamless experience, well, that's because that company was using Fenergo. And if you can remember a time when you tried to do similar and it was clunky and out of date and there was no selfie upload and they wanted paperwork and it went on forever, well, that was a company not using Fenergo. We're here to talk about the seven deadly sins of B2B marketing, Connor. So let's move on to your chosen sins. Um, of, of all of the sins available to us, um, what would be your top three? Sure. Um, I think envy is absolutely one that is commonplace across um many of the people in the discipline. And um, wrath is one we don't often talk about as marketeers. Um, I think that's very much we're going to come on to around that, you know, wrath of not being considered um, at the top echelons of, of a company. And then I think we've got one definitely around sloth. Thank you very much. That's a good start. So let's dive right into envy. Do you envy other people? How does that work for you? Uh, well, yeah, it's certainly an, an interesting angle, right? Um, and I, I wanted to more come with thou shall not jump into ABX, uh, formerly known as account-based marketing, but now in the industry, account-based almost everything. And uh, for those who are who are seasoned veterans, the X relates to the uh, the alignment of sales, marketing and customer success, because without the three in play, you don't truly actually have a winning strategy or an ability to um, deliver. The frustration is on. I've been I've been fortunate to work on many many um, 
formerly ABM or ABX campaigns that have been true successes. And then I have observed and seen absolute car crashes um, and seen companies, small and large, waste millions on ill-informed, ill-advised, non-prepared ABX campaigns. And um, sometimes it's been due to very hyped up vendor pitching. And sometimes it's just been down to not doing those foundational basics. Well, I'm interested in what doesn't work because, you know, we are obviously here to help listeners do B2B marketing better. Sure. But one of the things is learning from other people's mistakes. You mentioned there that one of the failings maybe of ABX is around just using a technology platform. Well, I think fundamentally, um, it's quite foundational. So if I start slightly from a higher level and go, if you're working for a company and your product line is perhaps low cost, low decision, then ABX is of no use to you whatsoever. Fundamentally, if you're not doing an enterprise solutions play or if you're not trying to engage with a buying committee or multi-persona purchase, then ABX is not really going to deliver for you. And what you actually should be considering is a multi-mix demand gen engine that's effectively going to drive your growth and your lead flow. Because um, ABX, or as I said previously, ABM, it's a heavy lift. And um, a lot of people don't foresee that. Really, there are some foundational things you have to do. And if I could just flag two, and I'll, I'll stop. One is if you don't know your total addressable market, don't do ABX. If you don't have the basic set of agreed target accounts, don't do ABX. Those two requirements are absolutely key. And you'd be surprised how many people start a campaign or try to build out a marketing-only strategy and fail because they don't know those two key points. And how many clients do you think is ideal for a good ABX program? Personally, I think you need to keep it to less than 100 accounts, but it truly depends on the size of your business, size of your discipline, your function, your resources, and what you're trying to do. How would you see that team structure working? What types of skills do you need in-house? Well, to be frank, it's nearly all skills that you would expect from a modern marketing function. What we've done at Fenergo is we've established an agile group who slightly flex and gives perspectives. Um, our total marketing function is about 25 people, excluding contractors and external agency support. It's not the biggest in the world. Um, and... Uh, I've certainly seen dedicated wholesale functions in larger corporates. But for us, we've set together five. It's um, one of the content team. It's two members from the digital team. Um, It's my ABM lead. And you absolutely need someone to lead. Now, I am talking about the marketing reps from our team. But if I can add into that, it's dedicated members from the sales function. It's a member of the sales ops team. It's a member of the customer success team so that we can deliver that total alignment between sales, marketing and uh, customer success. Well, I think that uh, quite a lot of the listeners might be feeling envy at the moment that you've actually got your team so well structured. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how well it's working? Sure. So um, it's been an interesting evolution. And most of my team are actually very young. Um, So they're on the kind of level two, level three um, journey in their careers. So it's been quite an interesting process. Exciting for them, but where the challenges are and, and how things have gone. So we've just done a pilot on some Nordic banks, which we've been targeting um, proactively. It's given us interesting lessons learned. The tailoring and targeting of the content, getting to those personas and actually making your, your content speak to them in a manner that they expect and in a way that they expect is a big challenge. And speaking very plainly, the first few weeks of the pilot showed us that we weren't doing it very well. 
Um, or that the, um, I'll take an example, we use LinkedIn as a key channel. Um, our advertisements were not resonating. Um, we were getting uptick. We were getting some engagement. We weren't seeing the downloads. We weren't seeing the, we weren't meeting the KPIs we wanted. So we flexed. Um, now we've seen improvement around, and, and how did we flex? Um, so we started to tailor the content to the specific entity that they work for. Um, we didn't go as far as the being overly creepy and saying, you know, dear John, we know who you are. <laughs> but we were able to say, hey, we know where you work and we know where you're based. So in that case, it was, you know, some local imagery being put into the content, trying to match the tone of the organization and the color palette to what they were seeing, trying to show them that we understood what they were facing. And fundamentally, we had insight from a variety of means about the challenges they were facing. So we were displaying the fact that we understood their pain and then hopefully being able to say, you know, come talk to us, we can collaborate and together we'll solve the challenge that you're facing effectively. Yes, because as far as I know and understand, the whole point about ABM is very much to understand the challenges that the client's facing and then be able to showcase how your particular company or product is going to enable them to it would be successful in addressing that challenge. So actually, that leads me pretty well onto, um, I was going to leap to your third uh, sin about a sloth, really, which is all about whether or not you're putting enough effort into things like gaining insight about your target audience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And that does tie into, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, that the need to become... Um, more insightful and informed about not only the business um, and the customers that you're, you're, you're working with, but also the products and the, the macro trends in the space that you're in. And also going deeper into that addressable market and knowing ultimately, you know, how do you talk to, how do you speak to, how do you engage with your customer base and then your prospect base? So we do a variety of things, actually, at Finergo. Um, some, some tools and techniques people will be aware of. I'll start with the absolute basic. You don't need the most sophisticated technology in the world to know the pain points of your customer. What you need is a fluid relationship with your frontline personnel who can relay back to you um, what are the pain points they're seeing. Equally, um, well, certainly in my case as a, as a CMO, I'm out there talking with our customers frequently, certainly picking up the phone. Um, I regularly drop in on what we call uh, AQLs, automatic qualified leads. So if you've come to our site and you've raised your hand, I often will reach out and just say, hey, how did you find that experience? Did we offer up to you the, the information you needed? What those, just to, to, to qualify, those frontline personnel. So in that case, you're talking about customer service representatives or salespeople. Who, who's the best information coming? From. I think it's kind of twofold, right? So you, your your field sales rep will ultimately tell you what they believe the customer needs to succeed, but isn't necessarily the full picture. To get that, I often find in our case, it's our customer success management team, but also if you want to take a customer service who really hear. Now, our industry is a, is a technology-driven one, so we also engage a lot of analyst houses and they will relay back to us that the candid frank exchange that they may have with participants in the marketplace and how they perceive us. There are listening tools out there that you may choose to acquire or engage <laughs> with. Some of them um, are for LinkedIn. Some of them will tell you what conversations are taking place and the positivity, negativity or neutrality of the statements. Some of these are amazingly slick and depending on the region you operate in, will tell you what your clients are searching for via their IP addresses, what searches are taking place across different platforms and they'll be able to relay back to you that you're seeing the following pattern from the target personas you're engaging with. Isn't there a problem though that these listening tools are 
used also by your competition and so that you're all getting that same information at the same time and then you all suddenly jump in and you're all after that client talking, oh, I want to talk about this with you and they're getting the same message from maybe 10 different suppliers. How do you get around that? Well, we're lucky um, and I suppose this is part of the secret sauce at Fenergo anyway. Um, we have a, a client community and um, I'm sure many of your listeners are going to go, OK, community, um, what do you mean? So our clients um, f- fundamentally dictate our build process. All clients have a vote. The votes are weighted and then they in real time, they determine what they want to see. The clients tell us what we're going to build so that we build to meet their demand and their demand is validated by currently 75 plus institutions and that's what we develop. And are they feeding that information back to you via those frontline personnel or via a specialised platform? How do they do it? So it, it's a fewfold. Um, we have three different foras that are live. So they're managed by um, reg tech or compliance or product specialists who actually run the fora and they are physical and digital. Um, there's dedicated platforms which they engage in but actually predominantly it's physical engagement and we do around the world um, sessions and also digital engagements and it's real time and active and to be very frank your clients will tell you what you're doing right or wrong and is that coming in on a, on a daily basis weekly how, how often it so I can see well it, it is daily um, but in, in reality what happens is you get a monthly update effectively um, and and our clients aren't engaging for the benefit of, of our firm they're engaging for the benefit of their firm so very often if you look at our regulatory forum they're looking to our regulatory experts telling them what their pain points are and then our regulatory experts are operationalizing how they meet the challenge and then they're sending back to them a paper effectively every month to educate them on the steps they should take to adhere to compliance or to utilize um, our services and platform more effectively. So what's the role of marketing in that? Because it sounds like a very direct relationship between the people within Fenergo and also your clients. Does marketing have a role to play? Absolutely. So even the orchestration of the communications exercises entirely down to us. One of our major highlights in that process is our uh, client council, which is basically our, our global get-together, if you want to put it that way, with all the members of the community. It's completely orchestrated by marketing. It's complete delivery. Um, and in addition to, obviously, clients wanting to feed in their needs and to also share their, their challenges because that's part of the community. It's in-candid. Um, they can share any problems they have with their peers, Can I ask a question about um, international responses while we're talking about this? Because obviously Fenergo is an international company. You've got uh, offices all over the world. Do you see any differences in the way that clients interact with you through fora like that from different locations? Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to sensitivities and how regulated the markets are and and the persona that we're talking to. So um, actually our compliance and regulatory personas probably the most engaged, the most active. Um, The kind of product and data and technology um, uh, personas that we're talking to in the differing foras are somewhat less um, uh, engaged, one could say, or or perhaps they're more linear in the information that they exchange. So traditionally, where we've been most developed and we've had the deeper relationship, there's been more um, engagement from those regions. I suppose the slight difference I see is in Asia-Pac, which is a very broad and diverse and wide-ranging region, it really depends. So I'll give an example. We don't see this traction in Japan. Um, in Japan, it's very much peer review. Um, they will receive the information and they will share most likely, uh, well, not most likely, they share it to us very much on a one-to-one. They're not so much so keen on a one-to-many. 
And you're based now in New York, yes, Connor. Um, but it sounds like you've got a team that's spread all over the world. I Can do. Can you talk for a little uh, a moment about how you energize your team in so many uh, locations and also, you know, how you manage to do it from a time point of view. It can work the other way around, right? Because you get you get arbitrage, right, of the time zones. So projects continually tick around the clock um, because, you know, you've got your teams there to do it. But I absolutely hear you. So we've got a buddy up system within the team. So we've always tried to have team members, at least two or more, and I, I've worked in a variety of organizations, but two or more that have to be in the same location. Because it can be slightly insular if you're going to hire someone singularly to represent you in one region only. So how do we actually practically do it? Um, we have uh, an all-round call every single week. Um, each line manager engages with their team members. From my case with the biz dev team, it's one-to-one, one-to-many. Um, we have what we call quarterbacks in the team. So I'll give you an example. If you take um, Harry Patel, who's in our London office, he is our global lead for coordinating uh, amongst the biz dev guys to just keep them pepped, keep them rallied, keep them engaged, share that best practice, share that tacit knowledge. Uh, we do the same within the marketing teams. The digital team have a get-together. The product and content team have a get-together. We're, I'm very conscious also that we don't end up in silos. So we do cross-share all the time. We also have some tools and, and services, and um, we use that to share um, awareness and updates and track real-time projects and goals. But I've got to be frank, face-to-face is key. You cannot ultimately motivate a team completely remotely if you don't have some point of face-to-face engagement. So it's a policy at the firm. Everybody uses video. And then ideally, I will be in London, Dublin at least once a month. Um, Dublin is our head office and it's actually where the core of my team is based. I'm based in New York and it's about once a quarter I'm out to Asia as well. Um, I try to touch base with as many people as I can, both in my team and in the other disciplines. But it is um, continuous engagement and then my direct reports do similar travel arrangements. So to be frank, it's, it's regular, regular contact and a lot of use of digital. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Certainly at Omobono, we use a huge number of video calls as a way of building relationships, not only with our own teams, but also with our clients. And one of the things that we've been doing, um, we're, we're doing a lot of work around Brené Brown. I don't know if you know her. She's a, she's a leadership coach. One of the things she says is the importance of having those sessions, at the, those moments at the beginnings of video calls, which are about the opportunity for you to share little personal details. How's your day been? How do you feel about stuff? Rather than leaping straight sure. into the business side. So then you get, when you get into the business discussion, you've got a much stronger feeling about how the person on the other end of the video is actually feeling as opposed to just leaping straight into, right, what's the status on this or that? To me, it was new and interesting when I joined the firm that um, WhatsApp actually is majorly used. We are constantly in contact, and the amount of emojis that fly around on WhatsApp is unbelievable. <laughs> but um, trust me, we absolutely know what the team is feeling because they're definitely not shy of telling you. Let's move on to your third sin, which is wrath. I'm really interested about what makes you really angry. You mentioned uh, the fact that you don't feel that marketing has a seat at the table, and you obviously think it should. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm primarily speaking, obviously, not from my, my time at Finergo, because um, I do. Um, but it's definitely a concern that both I, I've seen in many, many companies in, in my t- career. And also, it comes up quite frequently, um, certainly even with the uh, people I'm mentoring externally, that it's an issue that they, they see that the voice of marketing is not often heard, or, or they perceive it not to be heard. Or there's a perception that... Um, 
why why do sales have a seat at the table or why is the uh, the revenue line per se having a seat at the table but not necessarily marketing in its broadest sense and it can often be a significant frustration to marketeers as to why this is not the case and that can also translate into also there's a perception sometimes, depending on the functions you're in, that marketing can be an order taker and they're not always clear as to why the instruction or mandate's been given because they weren't part of the discussion that it, that the decisions arose from. And that can lead again to frustrations. It can also lead um, to a lack of clarity about what you're ultimately trying to achieve. So I think I'll turn that question back to you and say, in, in your view, what is stopping marketing getting that seat at the boardroom table? It's multifaceted, um, uh, but there are some clear issues. One is um, we love jargon in marketing. I'll give you an example, um, but I'll give you a current example. I wouldn't expect my C-suite to understand the terminology that we use in marketing for every single stage, not only of the buying journey, but the engagement process, but the lead machine and everything that goes with it. So, So how do you circumnavigate that? Well, If you look at how other disciplines are feeding in and being represented um, at the C-suite table and the board and beyond, um, it's because they're using a common framework. So the same terminology that's used in sales pipeline, revenue pipeline, margin performance, etc., is used by those disciplines. And at Finergo, and we're on a journey ourselves here, we're moving all of our reports to a common framework, to common visual identity, so that you can process the information fast, effectively. Um, equally, there's only certain data points that C-suite representatives and board members want. Um, your board is certainly going to be focused on margin, um, lead generation, pipeline, um, depending if you're using CAGR or ACV, there's going to be focused on the revenue um, lines. They're less concerned about likes, shares, tweets, engagements, um, and or even views, right? So, so do you think that marketing is failing to make that link between the instant impact that we might get through campaigns and the longer term effect and how that turns into pipeline and revenue. Yeah, absolutely. So so a challenge for me and my team coming uh, this year was how do we reflect that even more effectively? And often it can be um, at multiple levels. So marketing can have an impact on the buying process two years out. And how do you show that in this month's report? Well, you don't. Um, and, but you should track it and be able to show that you have had an influence and, and how it's going through. Equally, uh, you should talk in terms that mean um, something to your audience. So if I'll give an example. If, if sales are talking in weeks, months, quarters and half years, why are you talking in a different time period? Equally, your CFO is going to be looking to you for your spend analysis. And... Bad examples I've seen in the past is where people go, we don't know what we've spent today or we don't know where we are in our spend. We can't give you a forecast. Um, or you have this, we're going to book half of our budget in, in Q1 because that's when we do it. And actually, cash flow is not something we're overly concerned about. But these are not the words your CFO wants to hear. Your CFO wants to know that you're budgeted, you're forecast, you've planned it out, your cash flow is being managed. And you should take responsibility for that and be able to report back. Now, All of this sounds easy, but it isn't. And all of it requires a shift in thinking. And equally, you need to come in with those clear KPIs. I sit down and agree with the C-suite. Our KPIs at the very onset of the year, they may flex accordingly, um, but they are agreed by all. Plain sight, transparent, what are we doing? 
where are we going? How does the business, where does the business want to be? How is marketing going to act as a catalyst and support those corporate objectives? And then how, what, how are we being measured against them? And then be expected to feed back on those KPIs. Now, if you don't get the buy-in at the onset, you can't really come knocking on someone's door. I just wanted to ask about sales and, and your relationship with sales. I mean, obviously, at Fernogo, you've got a very good upward relationship with the board. Do you sit alongside sales when you're, and do you develop your KPIs with them? How's that relationship working for you? So we're completely aligned. Um, I'm very fortunate to work with some very, if you want to put it, future forward sales heads. So it works literally along the following process. We sit down months in advance. We work out what is the strategy for the business. Um, where do we want to actually go? What's the revenue focus? What's the ultimate end goal for the business going to be? Then sitting down collectively as a C-suite, um, we'd outline how are we going to achieve that. And I literally sit down with my heads of sales and we go, okay, Let's have a look at what you're doing in each region. What's your target focus? What are your stretch goals? How much do you expect to bring in from what territories? And then ultimately, they're asked to us is also, well, how are you going to aid this process? And what share of this responsibility are you taking? And we then stand to that and we work out and say, okay, if that's your strategy, if your objective is to generate these revenues, then how are we going to help you achieve them? And we work from that process. Now, not everything goes to plan. And um, you've got to flex accordingly and you may get headwinds and you have to adjust. But we start off on the onset about, okay, how do we do this together? And then also we're very fortunate to have a team of global heads or, or subject matter experts, however you wish to define them, who also tell us, you know, in this vertical, in this sector, this is the approach that we're seeing. Let's work out our strategy around that. But and how it, often are you having those conversations once you've set the goal collectively. How often are you talking and continuing to have that conversation? Every single Friday, we will have a call about where the pipeline is, what are we measuring against our KPIs, what are we doing, what's working, what's not. And how do you balance on those Friday calls the perhaps the demand from sales to change tack, to do something different in response to a particular uh, lack of pipeline versus what you've set out as your overall brand building overarching goals at the beginning of the year? Sure. Well, we were slightly different um, for Finergo because our sales cycle is effectively between six to 24 months and the deal size is two to four million dollars on average. So it doesn't accelerate as, as you could say as quickly. Um, and uh, the 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 portfolio range is is not as broad as other firms. You could say that that can flex where you might say this product outweighs this product as, as, as such. However, it absolutely does happen when it goes, OK, well, which vertical or segment should we be focusing on? And if I can expand even just beyond sales, what do you do when the entire business wants you to do more, which is what I face nearly every single day? There's a, always a, there's always an ask. Um, whether it's coming from an SME or coming from a global head of sales um, about, you know, what can you do for me and what can you do for this sector and what can you do for our customers, of course, and prospects. And it is finite. There is a balancing act that happens and we have finite resources and there are only so many priority um, projects you can have in flight at any one time. So is your choice about what is too much content driven by your internal restrictions or do you genuinely think there is such a thing as too much content? So we're very fortunate. We've got a regular, strategic regulatory team of 40 people um, who are basically ex-attorneys, lawyers and, um, uh, and compliance officers who produce an unbelievable amount of content. So if we were to publish that stream alone, we would do nothing else for the rest of the year. Um, so 
we're, we're very, very unique in that sense that content isn't an actual challenge for the business. Uh, however, deployment is. You can only deploy so many campaigns at any one time. And uh, it's an issue that I've recently had, which is we've had to um, put our foot on the brakes. We've had to say, OK, let's start pacing things out. I'll give you an example that, that came up this year. So everybody returns generally from their holidays in September. And guess when everybody wanted to launch their next campaign? September. And they all wanted to launch it in the second week of September on the same day. And we were like, this is unfortunately too much. So that's an example of where you've got to sit down and educate people and say, well, actually, we can only put a light on so many things at once. Um, But there is always an ask for more. And the ask, to be very frank, comes down to what will generate the most return. If I'm being asked to undertake a project and the project is not going to be revenue generating, it is not getting attention. That's very much the focus for me. And I think that takes us back very nicely to what you were saying at the beginning, which is if that's the role of marketing and it's that clear, it entitles you to a seat at the highest table. I just wondered whether or not you might give, to finish, a a, a top tip for clients who perhaps don't have um, such exposure within their organisations. And particularly, you've talked about that the importance of the relationship with sales. Any top tips for people who want to build a relationship with sales that perhaps isn't as good as the one you've got at Fenergo? Sure. If I can answer that in in twofold um, and give the kind of smaller firm and the larger firm perspective, um, in larger firms, certainly the many corporates that I've worked with, I think you need to actually actively seek a mentor who's from the function because very often in larger corporates, you don't get the opportunity to actually uh, engage as much as you would like. And you need to step out of that silo and you need to engage and you may need to seek a mentor from the sales function if you can't actually deploy yourself and or shadow. If I can be very frank, ask for a coffee, meet someone. You know, there's often um, in some large corporates a perception that sales are are the enemy or something along those lines. They're not. They're people working for your one team, one dream. You all want to have the same goal. If they win, you win. In smaller firms, I think it's easier. But then also the burden in smaller firms is that you're often maxed out because you're doing multi, you're wearing multiple hats. You may think, well, sales never never stop asking for support and resources. But I think in a smaller firm it's slightly easier because usually uh, you can engage more. You you probably seeing the person constantly um, if they're not out on the road. And I think you're able to build a bridge easier in smaller firms. And if I if I can flag biz dev, and I know it's not necessarily the core to um, many marketeers' hearts, but um, I encourage our our effectively inside sales team to follow through with at least one of the opportunities they generate. So they may have taken it from from marketing through the digital process, engaged, developed and validated the opportunity. But instead of just passing it over at that stage, once it's been sales accepted, they go out on the road with the sales agent so they can see what are the conversations, how is it being received? And also they can learn more about the pain points and the insights of the end customer and hopefully refine also their, um, if you want to say, objection handling capabilities. And I think the same is just as important for marketeers. Um, not only do, do nearly, actually everyone in our team obviously has a development plan. Everyone in our team at least goes to external training. Everybody's encouraged to go to external conferences. And we try to get nearly everyone in our team to at least be in front of a client frequently. Connor, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I think you've got some great tips there that all B2B marketers will be able to use in their day-to-day jobs. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of The Seven Deadly Sins of B2B Marketing from Omobono, then please subscribe to the podcast, share with your colleagues, or even leave us a review. We welcome feedback. 
please contact us at sins at omobono.com.